Warner Solicitors provide advice on a range of legal matters to individuals, families and businesses. The leading legal directories regularly recognise Warners as offering some of the best legal advice in the region. This series of podcasts will give you an insight into some of the legal issues that may affect you and your family. Hello, I'm Paul Harvey and a very warm welcome to this Warner's Listers podcast. And today I'm with Matthew Aves. Matthew is head of family here at Warner's Listers. Welcome, Matthew. It's good to be with you, Paul. Matthew, thank you. Could you describe your role with Warner's? I've been at Warner's for 33 years now, so man and boy. I originally started off doing a mix of family work and litigation, and I switched to just doing family work back in about 2006, and I head up the department here. We've got a fairly big department. We cover all aspects of familial and relationship breakdown, really. And today the topic is going to be arrangements for children when getting divorced. So my opening question, Matthew, is what happens if we cannot agree with whom the children should live? That's not an entirely straightforward question because what happens depends very much on the circumstances of the relationship breakdown and is probably guided primarily by the personalities involved. So some people will have at the forefront of their mind uh, the importance of doing the best that they can for the children irrespective of the breakdown of their relationship whereas other people will be rather more combative about it and they will perhaps want to use the children as a lever in order to achieve what they want to achieve in in other spheres and there isn't a one-size-fits-all in terms of resolving problems over children Generally, there's a very strong emphasis on alternative dispute resolution, which in the sphere of children is very much geared towards mediation. So the first point is to try and, or the first stage is to try and agree the arrangements for children between the parties direct. If that isn't successful, and if it's a circumstance where there isn't a very high level of conflict, then mediation can be considered. And in a significant proportion of cases, mediation will work as a method of resolving those issues. So you go and see someone who is independent to the situation, who is very often a trained family lawyer and is therefore aware of the sort of parameters that the court uh, will work within and will hopefully act as a conduit or, or a vehicle for the resolution of any issues there are as to where the children should live or the amount of time that they should spend with the respective parents. And if that doesn't work then the fallback position is to make an application to the court for what's called a child arrangements order, which enables the court to decide how long the children should spend with each parent and who the children should live with. It can also cover other aspects, so you can make applications in respect of children's schooling, uh, in respect of their religious upbringing, in respect of medical treatment. But the court is very much seen as a point of last resort now. So my next question is, following from that, what are my rights to see the children? The emphasis there is wrong. And this is something that we often have to explain to clients because they come in from the perspective that they have a right to see their children. Whereas in fact, it's the children that have the right to see their parents. And the emphasis of the legislation is, is thought out. And the emphasis is very much that way because it's felt that if it's acknowledged that the children have a right to see their parents, mm. then it's a better way of framing it than the parents having a right to see their children. So every parent has a right to be involved in their children's upbringing, 
subject to some constraints of the court, but the frame of thought should be my children have a right to see me and it's me and it's the courts that are going to uphold that right rather than banging the drum and I have a right to see my children. And where will a child live if, say, we separate or divorce and if only one of us is the child's parent? Again, there's no definitive answers to that. In the vast, vast majority of cases, the child will ultimately end up living with the birth parent. There are some unfortunate cases where perhaps the, the birth parent has their own disability or their own issues which um, make them a less suitable parent than non-birth parent. But in the vast majority of cases, then you'll end up in a situation where the child will live with the birth parent. And perhaps if the child has an established relationship with uh, the other non-birth parent, then there'll be an arrangement by virtue of which they see them. And rules for adopted children? Is there a set rules for that? Adopted children are provided that the adoption is formal and, and complete. The adopted children are treated exactly the same as children mm. that are natural birth children of the parents. And of course, we increasingly see scenarios perhaps where there is um, a same-sex relationship and there may be adopted children within that relationship or there may be children that have been born from uh, sperm donors or from IVF. And again, if those children are recognised as being of that relationship, then they're treated in exactly the same way. And do we need to get a court order saying what will happen to the children when we divorce? Is, is that essential? Absolutely not. And during the course of my career, the legislation has shifted from where we were back in 1988, where before you could get divorced and actually get your decree absolute, you had to have an order for custody, which said who the children would live with. And you had to have an order for access, which said in what circumstances the absent parent would see the children. And there's been a transition, I think, as a result of various sociological and judicial studies that were carried out back in the 80s and 90s towards a scenario where the court has a sort of the overarching non-intervention policy. So the emphasis is very much on parents agreeing the arrangements of the children because it's felt that agreement and, and compromise and acknowledgement is a far better environment for both the parents and the children. So in a significant proportion of the cases that we deal with, and I would think the percentage is probably upwards of 80% of cases, no order is made at all in respect of the children. There's just an agreement or an acknowledgement as to where the children will live and uh, how often they'll see the other party. And life goes on like that. And how does a, a judge, if a judge is involved, decide which parent a child will live with when couples separate the court has uh, what's called a welfare checklist and a judge will work through a, a statutory list of, of factors which should be taken into account things like religious upbringing like any disabilities the children they have like what are the expressed views of the children if they're of an age where they're able to give a, a, a coherent and and reasoned explanation as to why they want to live with one parent rather than the other and the court may also utilise the facilities of CAFCAS, which is uh, an independent state-run organisation, which used to be referred to as the Court Welfare Office. And a CAFCAS officer can be appointed to the case and they will interview the children, they'll interview the parents, they might interview uh, people like teachers, 
perhaps social workers, if social services are involved with the family, and they will prepare a report which gives a recommendation to uh, the court as to with whom the children should live. And again, because it's a, a considered and full assessment of the situation, it's fairly rare that a judge will come down against the recommendation of a CAFCAS officer. And can a child live part-time with each parent after a divorce or separation? Absolutely. And again, as a result of the sort of sociological and social changes that we've had over the last 20 years or so, and people increasingly working from home and people increasingly having flexible working styles, then the sort of traditional, perhaps 1960s nuclear family is increasingly uncommon, I would say. And we more and more often see shared care arrangements which involve the children spending something approaching half their time with each parent. And there are sort of de minimis approaches that the court takes, and so it's fairly rare if a parent wants to see a child that they would spend anything less than, say, alternate weekends and an intervening night with the absent parent. But as I say, it's increasingly the case that uh, children will split their time relatively equally between the parents. And if circumstances change, will I be able to change the arrangements we agreed for our child when we get divorced? The court always has the ability to consider an application by a party, a parent, for a change in arrangements. And of course, there are things that happen in life, which means that arrangements might may need to change. So you may have a situation where someone's work becomes more demanding and they're able to spend less time with the family than they might otherwise like. Somebody might form a new relationship and want to move to a different part of the country. So the court's always got the ability to intervene in that situation at the request of either party. And in those cases, then they'll go through the same sort of exercise that they go through in any dispute. And they'll go through the welfare checklist and they'll have CAFCAS do a report and then they'll make an order upon the, the, the basis of the recommendations of CAFCAS. So I guess I know the answer to this question, but do I have the right to see a child living with my former spouse or partner on special occasions, you know, such as birthdays or, or Christmas? Uh, you don't have a right. An acceptable arrangement is generally that children will spend alternate Christmases with uh, their parents. They might well spend a proportion of their birthday or uh, you know, a couple of hours of their birthday with each parent. Uh, they might similarly spend some time with each parent on their birthdays, on the parents' birthdays, uh, and you tend to see arrangements where perhaps the children will go to their mother on Mother's Day and their fathers on Father's Day. And that's generally an arrangement and a, a setup which uh, the court will ratify and approve. But of course, the cases that get argued out where people are perhaps more intransigent and less understanding, you will have cases which are wherein the court is asked to make a decision as to as to where the children should spend those those special occasions. And do other members of my family have the right to contact my child that lives with my former spouse or partner? Again, they don't have a right. Uh, you would hope that parents would generally acknowledge the very positive contribution that the wider family can make to a child's upbringing and the very real benefits there are to children having contact with their grandparents, their aunts, their uncles, their, their cousins or whatever. And if there is a fundamental dispute, then it is open to a wider family to make an application to the court. 
they can't automatically make an application. So a grandparent doesn't have a right to make an application for an order for contact with their grandchild, but they can apply to the court for permission to make an application to see their grandchild. And provided that there's no particularly fundamental reason why the child shouldn't have contact with their wider family, then generally courts will support that. And if my former spouse or partner won't let me see the children, what can I do about that? Well, that takes us back to where we came in, really. The normal course of events is for the parent who isn't seeing the children to make a a reasoned and reasonable approach in writing to the parent who has day-to-day care and control, uh, setting out the sort of contact they'd like to have with the child. If that doesn't bear fruit, there's then the option of an invitation to come to mediation to discuss the issue. And again, if that is declined or is refused, then it's an application to the court for child arrangements order for provision to see the child. And then we're back where we started with the court getting involved with seeing statements from both parties, having CAFCAS involved and perhaps ultimately imposing an order for contact. And then to switch that round, can I stop my former spouse or partner seeing my child? Yes and no. It's very rare for the court to uphold a situation where one parent doesn't have any contact at all uh, with the other child. So there are circumstances in which the court might want to regulate the amount of contact or the nature of the contact that the absent parent has with the child. And they are generally the more, let's say, unsavoury cases where there has been some criminal behaviour on the part of the absent parent or where there has been some sort of behaviour on their part which might in some way affect their ability to provide for the child's physical and emotional needs. So we might perhaps get a situation where a mother says, I don't think that my child should spend a lot of time with his father because his father's an alcoholic and he regularly goes on binges and during those binges He's not in a position to provide properly for the child or to make sure the child is safe. And also I'm concerned that uh, seeing father in that state is going to have an emotional impact upon the child. So the court has a a toolbox of uh, arrangements that it can make or impositions that it can impose on the parties. So it might, for instance, say that the parent that has the the problem or the issue can only see the child uh, in a supervised environment. And it might have a sort of transitional, uh, a stepped arrangement. So you could initially have contact in a a contact centre, which means that it's supervised by a third party, then perhaps moving to supervised by a family member. And provided that the absent parent is shown to have made progress and to have addressed the issues they have, then you would hope that ultimately it would lead towards an unsupervised child arrangements. And do I have a say in in how my children are brought up, even if they live with my (coughs) former spouse or partner? Uh, You do have a say. Uh, If you're named on the birth certificate, which is uh, invariably the case these days, then you have what's called parental responsibility for the children. And uh, that doesn't give you rights, but it, it gives you a status. And it means that you should be consulted with regard to any major decisions that are made in the child's life concerning things like education, religious upbringing, medical treatment and the like. And really, parental responsibility is an an enshrinement of what you would hope that a good parent or an okay parent would do. And again, if a particular issue arises, so perhaps you've got a, a mother who 
has decided that um, the school isn't working for a child and she wants to move the child to a different school, then if that is something which can't be agreed between the parties direct, then you start that procession of methods of trying to resolve that issue. So direct discussion, then mediation, and if there's still an issue over it, then you can make an application to the court. And the court has the ability to make what's called a specific issue order, which, as it sounds, deals with a specific issue. So the specific issue of what school the child should attend, or whether the child should have a particular form of medical treatment. And those cases are sometimes relatively high conflict. And I've dealt in the past with cases where for instance, one parent was a Jehovah's Witness and the other parent had left the fraternity of the of the witnesses and the child needed medical treatment and the mother declined the medical treatment on the basis that Jehovah's Witnesses couldn't consent to that because of the issues arising in relation to blood transfusion, whilst the father very much wanted the child to have this medical treatment because he felt it would significantly improve their life. Uh, and ultimately the court decided that the medical treatment should go ahead. This is a scenario that we hear quite a bit about. But if my former spouse or partner want to take my child abroad and live abroad, how can I stop that? Well, these are fairly heartbreaking cases, and Mm. I've dealt with a few over the years. You have one parent that forms a, a new relationship or perhaps takes on a career move, which involves them moving abroad, and they can make an application for leave to take the child with them. And these cases are dealt with on a very subjective basis. And it is possible to take a child abroad, but you have to convince the court that it is a very thoroughly thought-out decision and that all appropriate arrangements have been made in terms of the child's schooling and upbringing abroad. And you also need to convince the court that you are going to come up with some proper arrangements for the child to have a continuing relationship with the parent who's left behind so you might have fairly regular direct contact which obviously comes at an expense and a degree of practical arrangement but you might also have very regular contact by way of telephone or by way of facetime or zoom meetings of course and the same applies in relation to moves within the country, although it is more difficult to to persuade a court that a, a parent shouldn't move within this country. But of course, in reality, if you have a parent that wants to move to Morpeth in, in Northumberland and you've got the parent being left behind living in, in Kent, then to all intents and purposes, Morpeth might as well be Switzerland or, or Austria or something. The court generally won't tolerate a move abroad to a country which is felt to be one in which some sort of danger exists for the child. So at the moment, if you wanted to move abroad to Afghanistan, for instance, uh, then I think Mm. that the court would probably decline that. Uh, And similarly, if you wanted to move to a country which wasn't uh, a signatory to the, the Hague Convention, which is the convention which covers the movement of children throughout the world, then you might struggle to get that. And if my former spouse doesn't want to have any involvement with the children, what can I do about that? Not a great deal, really. Again, as I said at the outset, these cases are very often about the personalities. In the same way that a a criminal court can't make someone that's fundamentally dishonest honest, a family court can't make someone who's fundamentally not Mm -hmm. a great parent into a great parent. 
the court doesn't have the ability to impose a regime of contact simply because it's totally problematic to try and regulate that sort of scenario. So you may have, again, a very unfortunate situation where one parent is very aware of the benefits of the child having contact with the other parent, but the absent parent isn't interested. And very briefly, Matthew, how are maintenance parents for my children worked out when we separate or divorce? Right, if you go right back, sort of pre-1993, then the court had the ability to make a decision how much maintenance should be paid for a child when uh, parents separated. And then in its wisdom, the government brought in what was originally called the Child Support Agency, and it took those powers away from the court and said that it was all going to be dealt with by a standardised system and standardised calculations. And that's very much what we have now. So there is a, a child maintenance calculator online on the government website and you type in how many kids you've got, you type in what your wage is and what your salary is and then a number comes out the other end which tells you how much maintenance you should pay. How much time the children spent with you will have an impact upon the amount of maintenance that the children should pay. So you get a discount if you see the children for 52 nights a year then you get a one-seventh discount. If you see the children for more than 104 nights a year, uh, you get a two-sevenths discount and so on. The situation is slightly confused because if you get divorced, then you can agree a level of maintenance for the children and you can have that ratified by the court within the financial order that you each sign up to at the conclusion of those proceedings. But the court order only has impact in terms of enforcement for a year so once a year has passed after your order has been approved then either party can then make an application to the agency the child maintenance agency for a reassessment they can do a calculation and then they can go to the other party and say look i'm not earning as much as i was i've done a calculation this is how much i think i should be paying now and if that figure can't be agreed then a formal application can be made to the agency for an assessment we generally say to clients that they should try and steer away from the agency because, like a lot of emanations of the state, it's, it's not the easiest of organisations to deal with. And as the assessments and the calculations are so readily available, uh, it should be possible to agree what the level of maintenance should be. The other scenario, which complicates matters somewhat, is in a situation where the parent who is paying the maintenance has a high level of income. And then if you have a maximum assessment from the agency, so you're paying their top level, the highest that they go, you can then ask the court to consider whether an additional element of maintenance should be payable. And that applies both to divorcing couples and to separating unmarried couples. To round all this off, Matthew, am I right in saying that you know, the children in these scenarios are sometimes the kind of forgotten victims. How can we minimise the upset that our separation or divorce proceedings can have on the children? Uh, talk. Talk and have as your priority the well-being of your children. Recognise that it's a fluid situation and that you may have young children who appear to be very adaptable and who appear to be able to deal with a separation on a day-to-day -day basis but the children get older and they learn about what has happened in the past. And as a general sort of thesis, it's far better to have 
contact with a parent that is absent. If you don't want to have a child who starts exhibiting problems in perhaps teenage years or even later in life, there are plenty of forums in which it's possible to have open discussions concerning arrangements for children. There are plenty of organisations out there in a form of mediation who can uh, facilitate agreement. And generally, people should see courts as being an absolute last resort. That's from all sorts of perspectives, from the perspective that children will respect parents who can agree the arrangements for them, even if they don't know it at the age of six, then subsequently they'll appreciate it when they get older. And litigation is a generally a very crude way. It's a very unsophisticated method of resolving what are often quite complicated psychological situations. Matthew, there's a lot of information here for people to absorb uh, regarding arrangements for children when getting divorced. If people want to make contact with you here at Warner's Listers, how can they do that? Well, of course, they're more than welcome to. And uh, probably the best initial approach is via email. And my email address here at Warner's is m.aves, which is A-V-E-S, at warners.law. Thank you, Matthew. I've been with Matthew Aves here at Warner's Solicitors. Matthew is the head of the family team. Thank you for listening to this Warner Solicitors podcast. To find out more about our expert legal teams and the advice and services they deliver for both individuals and businesses, please go to warners-solicitors.co.uk. Thank you.